0: Hello, welcome to episode 170. This is a special lockdown briefing. My name is Jim Babilis, Workplace Relations Legal Officer here at the VHAA. I'm here today with Clinton, Workplace Relations Consultant. Welcome, Clinton.
1: Thank you, and happy to be here, Jim.
0: Um, There has
1: been a lot of uh, talk recently about mental health bargaining. Can you give us a bit of an update?
0: Absolutely. Well, Clinton, we're now five months into bargaining or to be more precise, 26 meetings. Needless to say, it's been a challenge and an experience all rolled into one. The challenge, I guess, clearly has been that we are bargaining via go-to meetings and Microsoft Teams, and this means that the personal communication is really missing. We've also been bargaining with two unions, and this has also been a little bit of an experience, particularly in matters where they do disagree among themselves. And we must also note that we are also bargaining for the Forensic and Mental Health Agreement as well. And last but not least, you know, the COVID restrictions as well. So it's been a challenge.
1: Noted. And from what I understand, we have had an independent facilitator chair meeting since late August.
0: Yes, that's correct. Former Commissioner David Gregory has been facilitating the discussions and overall they've been quite useful and productive.
1: And how many claims were there in total?
0: Listen, there are 200 in total. Now, whilst that uh, this is a, this may appear as a significant number, many of these claims can be grouped together or are indeed thematic. For instance, many HACSU and AMF claims do cross over.
1: And what have been the key themes of the claims? Uh,
0: listen, staffing profiles, classifications, uh, quality care, uh, treatment and support, gender equity and professional development. Also, a large number of claims might be grouped. to into what we would call the Royal Commission Outcomes Bucket. In other words, considering that the uh, Royal Commission final report is not due until February 2021 and that the government has committed to implementing these recommendations, these claims will need to be considered through a facilitated clause.
1: Noted, and I understand that there are a number of claims that have been agreed in principle. Can you talk us through this?
0: Absolutely, there are a large number of claims that have been agreed. What our process has been is to categorise these claims into areas of the impact that they would have and what the ultimate interest really is.
1: Can you elaborate on that?
0: Of course, Clinton. In relation to impact, the real measuring stick, so to speak, is what will the overall impact be, say, from a cost or operational standpoint? For instance, uh, is it you know, a no impact, minor impact or a cost impact? The latter being cost impact, obviously concerns aspects of financial consideration from union claims. I would also note that the claims that we will discuss today are within the summary of the claims agreement in principle document, which was issued to members on 21 October via Bulletin 2602.
1: Thanks, Jim. And what would be a no impact type of claim that you mentioned?
0: Yeah, so, you know, great question. It would be the following claims or, or clauses, you know, clause 10, modernization of the agreement, Clause 11, incidents and operation of the of the agreement. Clause 17a, gender-based discrimination, which is actually new. Clause 18, consultation. Clause 18, capital A, consultation about changes to rosters or hours of work. Clause 22, managing conduct and performance. Aboriginal traineeship deed, which is also new. Clause 62, payment salaries. And last but not least, you know the PSO be renamed as mental health assistance, which is also new
1: so jim what i'm seeing is that the no impact claims whilst important would not necessarily impose financial and cost issues on dhhs or the health services
0: clinton that's right um really but there is a slight caveat to it the one exception would be the aboriginal traineeship deed this is really where um, the claim or clause really is about inserting a provision for something that's obviously been previously agreed, and this, you know, is called the Aboriginal Traineeship Deal. it was a previously departmental initiative. So, there's really no requirement to point anything further to these roles. It has been previously agreed.
1: And can you indicate what would be a uh, minor impact?
0: Absolutely. Just to give you a, a quick rundown, clause 19, redundancy in associated entitlements uh is one clause 22.5c this is around managing co- uh, conduct and performance particularly possible outcomes and this really is about changes to uh the clause that to reflect that any disciplinary outcome or counselling can only be relied upon say for 12 or 18 months and not just warnings um, further to that clause 22.1 um, subsection e managing conduct and performance and this has to do with the exception specifically employees who have not completed a minimum period of employment with their employer to take that a little bit further clinton where an employee has not completed the minimum employment period as defined under section 383 of the fair work act you know uh, the employer is to provide the concerns in writing of rights to a representative including a union also this would um, entail that they have to provide an opportunity to improve their performance of conduct and last not but least proceed uh, with termination if it's sufficient improvement or in performance or conduct is noted. Further to that, we have clause 23.4, and this is the fixed term employment clause. And just to touch on this as well, this has been um, slightly rewritten. It's a rewritten clause to outline that fixed term employment will not be used to fill an ongoing position, subject to these positions outline where fixed term employment may be appropriate. The real preference here is for secure employment. Then we have clause 57, employment arrangements. And this really deals with the insertion of a subclause to outline where the appointment is varied and where that variation shall be recorded in writing and a copy provided to the employee. Once again, preference here is for secure employment. Then we have clause 73. This is travelling and relocation. And this really um, wants to identify uh, and um, take a little bit further. The insertion of clauses to outline... um, you know, payment and it really will be in these following three scenarios. One, the employee will be paid the vehicle allowance for temporary relocation from their base employment campus to another campus during a shift. Secondly, the employee will be reimbursed for additional traveling cost where applicable, where an employee is required to temporarily relocate from their base employment campus to another campus. Um, It will also encompass a situation where an employee will be reimbursed for additional costs if required to permanently relocate as a result of redundancy. And probably just one last point I'd, I'd want to make on, on those three points is, you know, it will also cover a situation where an employee will be reimbursed for additional travel costs if required to permanently relocate um, and, and those positions are not actually redundant further to that Clinton we also have clause 89 this is the professional development and associate entitlements clause and this really deals with situations around professional development or study leave which may be utilized to support state government initiatives to improve workforce development of priority areas of nursing care
1: thanks for that Jim and are there any new claims that fall within this ambit of minor impact
0: there are actually, and, and they really are as follows, and these are all, the following ones are all new claims, as you've indicated. So, uh, firstly, roussons uh, in mental health wards, new claim. Uh, secondly, Clause 62.3, which is the Payment of Salary Clause, has a, a, a new subclause specifically around biometric timekeeping, which is also new uh, and in line with uh, analogous provisions in the Nurses Agreement and uh, we also have uh, lived experience workers to have access to supervision which is also new. I guess if I could probably just take that a little bit further Clinton, um, really these three, the key themes of these three claims really is around professional development and responsive public sector, uh, building skills and capacity as well as capacity and right now they are all subject to drafting.
1: Thanks for that, Jim. And just a point of clarity: Why would um, lived experience workers be deemed to be a minor impact claim?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a valid point that you raised. and um, as I've stated, I guess in a few previous podcasts, as well as I guess maybe um, in great detail in the reference groups, this is a—it really is a key theme of HACS2's longer claims. In fact, probably the key theme for for HACS2. Essentially, the introduction of lived experience workers into mental health will be a recommendation of the final Royal Commission report. That's that's a certainty it's a fair summary that uh, the department you know has also factored the factored in these costs and the real impact will be in what the descriptors look like and this will be really a work in progress part of this will be to coordinate and develop with what were already already in schedule seven of the current mental health agreement in respect of say peer workers and consumer consultants
1: Thanks, Jim. And are there any other claims that might fall into this category that may appear to be significant, but from a cost perspective, have minimal impact?
0: Um, Yes, definitely. And I guess it's really the the, um, occupational health and safety claims. You know, firstly, specifically around clause 55.12, you know, subsection H. Um, This is really around, you know, return to work, Uh, you know, proposed clause to have um, employers advise employees that they may have representative. Range regarding their return to work or rehabilitation. Uh, secondly, um, amendments to you know clause fifty-five point four C, really to outline say the following an incident, the employer will, as soon as practicable, do I guess the next five steps. You know, firstly, provide all employees, you know, expo- exposed to occupational violence with access to post-incident support services. Um, secondly, take appropriate action to prevent further injury to employees. Thirdly, conduct an incident investigation in a timely manner and implement controls where appropriate to prevent the incident recurring. Fourth, provide information regarding the employees' rights as relevant, including the making and lodging of a workers' compensation claim or reporting the matter to the police. And last uh, but not least in relation to this, allow employees who require time off work to provide statements relating to occupational violence to police and or by agreement to other relevant authorities without the loss of pain necessarily and uh, there's just a couple of other things that also come up with the ohs clause you know 15.3 you know subsection e and this really deals with uh, risk management uh, specifically um, you know uh, nums and a nums and supervisors to receive adequate uh, education education support to really ensure that uh, you know they can undertake um, the assessment of ohs risks um, the undertaking of ohs incident investigations as well as consultation with staff over over, over ohs issues uh, the last two points around ohs um you know deal with i guess 55.3f and this is um, also another risk management issue you know and really inserting proposed words that the employers Will ensure that all support staff are informed of any heightened OVA risk within the unit and any additional precautions that are necessary to reduce this risk. And it also wants to ensure that, you know, employees take additional precautions uh, as well. Uh, 55.7 is the last one, um, Clinton, and this deals with, um, you know, the health and safety representative election process, and that employs to provide a copy of the designated working group list with the names of the various you know, HSRs as we call them, the date of the election and uh, the, the date of appointment and the day they undertook training um, so that this information is provided to the union within 28 days of receiving this written request.
1: Thanks for that, Jim. And I'm going to turn my gaze to the cost impact claims. Could you uh, elaborate on that if you could?
0: Absolutely. I guess there are many, So, uh, and some of them, I guess, are, are easy to identify. So let's probably start, I guess, with superannuation claims in Clause 29. And there's really, I guess, two key components to this. One, proposal that superannuation is payable to employees' nominated super account on the same day that the wages are paid, where uh, the employer's payroll systems are, in fact, capable of doing this. Uh, where the services, in particular, servant services, you'd all use older systems, Uh, Without the capability um, to do this, they are to continue as normal. Any new payroll system implementation after the operation of the new agreement must really be capable of superannuation payments on the same day as the wages were paid. And secondly, superannuation is to continue to be paid through the absence on parental leave, not just the paid component. Further to that, uh, we also have the long service leave um, uh, claims at Clause 39. And this really is around another two key components. One, the parties uh, are supportive of the seven years entitlement, uh, but it will be done through a stage process. Really at this point in time, you know, this is, this is a, a drafting stage. And secondly, the periods of unpaid parental leave are to counter service. And once again, this is also really right at a drafting stage. Uh, further to that, we have uh, the qualification allowances pursuant to clauses 71 and 111 of the of the agreement. And this really deals with situations around the payment of qualification allowances to health professionals um, uh, to continue on all forms of paid leave on the same terms as what they would apply for nurses. Then we have um, clause 75, which deals with shift allowance. And this really deals with situations where you know, we would like to temporarily increase the Sunday night shift allowance, you know, for for the permanent staff, and this could be RPNs, PSNs, and PSOs. And it really aims to increase the employment of permanent employees on Sunday nights as part of a trial period to determine cost effectiveness. Uh, this really wants to align to operational reforms, and really, you know, it really, I guess, wants to address a key issue around absenteeism and servicing inefficiencies um and and gender equity i guess is another key component to this uh the next one that we we've considered is clause 34 and this really deals with situations uh to to, i guess have leave to engage in voluntary emergency um, management activities and really what is being considered here is um we want to have consistency and alignment with the general nurses agreement uh, insofar as that an employee who engages in such activity with a recognised emergency emergency management body um, will, you know, th- that requires attendance will be paid up to two weeks of leave subject to operational requirements. We also have, I guess, uh, ceremonial leave at Clause 35, and this is another key um, issue as well. And what we're aiming to do here is we want to amend the clause to outline where an employer um, has an employee that receives a request Um, or puts in a request sorry for a substituted public holiday um, say for NAIDOC week for instance the employee will consider all the circumstances including you know the reason identified as well as the operational requirements of the employer. Mm -hmm. Further to that we have a new claim which is special pay disaster leave and really what we're considering here is that where an employee is a full-time or part-time employee and has either exhausted the accrual or, uh, or circumstance in many instances that does not qualify for personal leave um, they'll be able to take it and this leave is non-cumulative and the leave is applicable in a situation where the employees is unable to attend work due to a disaster that may result in say their residence being damaged or under immediate threat of, of, of major damage as well as you know the life safety of their immediate family or household members are threatened uh, or, or subject to formal closure for instance then we also have um Another new claim, which is absence on defence service leave, you know, very similar to nurses here. This is applicable to full-time and part-time employees who are absent on defence service leave in which they will be entitled to reimbursement from the employer subject, obviously, to the appropriate process. Um, The next one to consider is clause 79, which is overtime. And really what we're aiming to do here is amend the clause to provide for overtime rates for casuals, as as we've really found that the current overtime uh, clause excludes casual employees. Um, we're currently drafting proposals and really what it is aiming to do is, you know, say from Monday to Friday inclusive, time and a half of the first two hours plus casual loading at 175%, and double time plus casual loading thereafter at 225%. We've also factored in the Saturday to Sunday shifts inclusive, and this will be double time plus casual loading at 225%. And last but not least, we've also factored in public holidays through, um, you know, the public holiday clause, or clause 88 of the mental health agreement. Uh, then we have clause 81, which is the on-call clause. And this really deals with the situation where what we're trying to do here, there are some specific uh, changes, um, clarifying the on-call allowance for the first uh, paid for 12 hours or part thereof, uh, the recall being paid at the equivalent overtime rate, uh, the requirement to not have to work minimum recall period if work can be completed in less time. Uh, time spent travelling to be time worked. Recall without you know return to the workplace, and recall staff who are on call currently uh, only entitled to two hours of recall payment. So we've, we've factored in those those issues as well. Then we have clause 84.5, which is around rosters and really i guess what we want to do here is um specifically with the agreement is to require plant on-call roster and increases in change of roster allowance to 14 days and at five percent and this really is to align with the general nurse's outcome uh, then we have clause 89.3a and this is specifically around I guess one of the key themes of of bargaining so far which is around professional development and associate entitlements and really it's about increasing the study placements to a thousand um, places Um, there are also i guess um you know other claims as well that that are quite important specifically around i guess um annual leave clause 85 as you as you probably know deals with annual leave and what we want to do here is you know the access to the six weeks of annual leave for all nurses who are weekend, wor- weekend workers, sorry, on the basis that the agreed variation to the definition of a weekend worker, you know, obviously a clearer test, um, where the weekend worker, um, you know, really is required to work at least 10 weekends in a year. Uh, furthermore, we want to introduce a mechanism um, which includes within a draft words for the transitional arrangements. For example, full-time employees who had not worked up to 10 weekends um, up to 30 June 2022. Also, all mental health clinicians to have a minimum of six weeks annual leave for the purpose of attraction and retention within the sector on the basis that the agreed variation to the definition of a weekend worker, uh, for instance, the clearer test for who is a weekend worker, um, is, is also been accepted. And then, uh, I guess, Clinton, last but not least, uh, and there's obviously a fair bit to take in so far, is clause 86, personal leave. And this really is around, you know, that the, you know, the, the new the employee from any benefit under the subclause, the portability of personal leave provisions, where an employee transfers to another employer and remains engaged as a casual or on casual bank with the previous employer. So just taking those factors all into consideration.
1: Thanks for that, Jim. Um, that's quite an extensive group of claims that have a cost impact. Um, earlier, you mentioned that in addition to impact, you also looked at the rationale for the claims and why you would look into accepting them. Could you expand on this?
0: Uh, absolutely. I guess the key theme of this bargaining round has really been to capture certain claims and clauses as common. For instance, I think we touched on it a bit earlier on, but, you know, Clause 10, modernization of the agreement. Uh, clause 11, incidents and operation of the agreement. Uh, clause 17, capital A, gender-based discrimination. You know, Clause 18, consultation clause 18 capital a consultation about changes to rosters or hours of work um yeah and clause 22 managing contact performance these are all i guess common commonality time claims whilst when you actually consider say the um cost claims around superannuation and long service leave these would almost certainly feel or fall into the bucket of gender equity
1: thanks for that jim and what about BPAC claims so where where would they sit
0: You know, that's a good question. BPEC claims, I guess, um, you know, are minor impact claims. And these would include, I guess, uh, themes such as climate change initiatives, as well as the reduction in operational legal documentation.
1: Thanks, Jim. And any final thoughts for us?
0: Uh, I guess Clinton bargaining is almost done. We're nearly there. I think we've got only a few more bargaining meetings to go. So I guess to the members, stay tuned. It's almost done. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Clinton. You company me down, but you don't turn me down. You turn me down, but you do